If you would, turn with me to the Gospel of John. It's the fourth book in the New Testament. John chapter 4. If you're reading out of the Red Pew Bible, it should be on page 888. One of, the, uh, one of the great things that John provides for us that the other gospel writers don't as much is we get to see Jesus in one-on-one conversation with different people. And so whereas some of the other gospel writers focus more on uh, Jesus' teachings to the crowds or Jesus' miraculous deeds, both of those things are here in John's gospel. But what we also have are one-on-one conversations, which is why... Uh, I titled the, the series Meeting Jesus because, well, we get to see Jesus meet people and we get to see what he says to them. <clears throat> Earlier in chapter 3, we see how Jesus interacts with a man named Nicodemus, uh, a good man, uh, a religious man, a, a guy that we all probably would have respected and liked. And now we're going to see Jesus have a, a very different conversation uh, with a very different person. So... Let's read John 4, verses 1 through 26. Now, when Jesus learned that the Pharisees had heard that Jesus was making and baptizing more disciples than John, although Jesus himself didn't baptize, but only his disciples, he left Judea and departed again for Galilee, and he had to pass through Samaria. So he came to a town of Samaria called Sychar, near the field that Jacob had given to his son Joseph. Jacob's well was there. So Jesus, wearied as he was from his journey, was sitting beside the well. It was about noon. A Samaritan woman came to draw water. Jesus said to her, Give me a drink. For his disciples had gone away into the city to buy food. The Samaritan woman said to him, How is it that you, a Jew, ask for a drink from me, a woman of Samaria? For Jews share nothing in common with Samaritans. Jesus answered her, If you knew the gift of God and who it is that is saying to you, Give me a drink, you would have asked him. And he would have given you living water. The woman said to him, Sir, you have nothing to draw water with, and the well is deep. Where do you get that living water? Are you greater than our father Jacob? He gave us the well and drank from it himself, as did his sons and his livestock. Jesus said to her, Everyone who drinks of this water will be thirsty again. But whoever drinks of the water that I give him will never be thirsty forever. The water that I will give him will become in him a spring of water welling up to eternal life. The woman said to her, Sir, give me this water so that I will not be thirsty or have to come here to draw water. Jesus said to her, Go, call your husband and come here. The woman answered him, I have no husband. Jesus said to her, You are right in saying, I have no husband, for you have had five husbands, 
and the one you now have is not your husband. What you have said is true. The woman said to her, said to him, Sir, I perceive that you are a prophet. Our fathers worshipped on this mountain, but you say that in Jerusalem is the place where people ought to worship. Jesus said to her, Woman, believe me, the hour is coming when neither on this mountain nor in Jerusalem will you worship the Father. You worship what you do not know. We worship what we know, for salvation is from the Jews. But the hour is coming and is now here when the true worshipers will worship the Father in spirit and truth. For the Father is seeking such people to worship Him. God is spirit, and those who worship Him must worship in spirit and truth. The woman said to Him, I know that Messiah is coming, He who is called Christ. When He comes, He will tell us all things. Jesus said to her, I who speak to you am He. Let's pray. Father, would you open blind eyes? Would you take your word, read, heard, and now preached, and would you do the work that you long to do? Would you call your people to yourself? Would you illumine our understanding Help us to delight. Help us to delight in you. We ask it in Jesus' name. Amen. Uh, My my brother, my younger brother, spent a semester in the Bahamas, which sounds really nice, except that what you need to know about the Bahamas, if you don't know this, that outside of the few resort areas, the Bahamas is actually a pretty poor country. And what my brother was doing there was he was on, he was on a, an extended mission trip of sorts. He was there to facilitate different construction groups coming in, and he was living at a summer camp, uh, obviously not in use. It, wasn't the, it was the spring and wasn't the summer, so he lived at the camp. I went to visit him uh, on my spring break, and the first day there, I, go to, uh, I turn on the tap in the bathroom, and uh, I go to brush my teeth. And my brother says, I wouldn't do that. And I said, well, <laughs> I'm, I'm just brushing my teeth. Like, how, how bad can it be? It's not like I'm gulping down gallons of water here. He said, let me, let me show you something. And so we, we walk outside, and Carrie showed me the cistern. The cistern that supplied the water to every toilet, every shower, every faucet, in the camp, and uh, this cistern was basically a concrete block structure. I can't remember now if it was round or square, but its job was to collect rainwater. Uh, so here you have this concrete structure uh, covered with some rusty sheet metal, and uh, it collects rainwater and some debris and some mosquito larvae. Uh, so, needless to say, I used bottled water to brush my teeth uh, for the rest of that week, um, and I did not open my mouth in the shower. Uh, that, is what, that is what cistern water is, and 
you don't really realize how important, how important good, fresh water is until you're in that kind of situation where you don't have good, fresh water. And Jesus is part of the world in Palestine. It's dry. It's arid. A cistern was really your last choice, right? It, you didn't, if, you, if you didn't have to use a cistern, you wouldn't use a cistern. Your first choice, your best choice, is what Jesus calls, it's what the Bible calls living water. And that doesn't have necessarily any spiritual connotation. It's a, it's a Hebrew phrase. Living water means moving water, right? So not a stagnant pond, but moving water. So a spring provided living water. A river, more or less, provided living water. That's what, that's what kind of the physical meaning of that word living water is. It's, it's what you wanted. It was, was going to be fresh. It was going to be clean, mostly, um, because it wasn't sitting still. And so... What you want is living water. It's what Jesus wants. He's hot. He's tired. And it's not the main point of the sermon, but I think it's an interesting aside and even important for us to realize right there in in verse 6 that Jesus is weary from his journey. And what's beautiful about that is that even though Jesus is God and we are going to see him read this woman's past, we are going to see him raise people from the dead. He has the identity and the powers of God. He's also a man. And he's such a, he's such a man that he even gets tired. That in a hot, on a hot day and a long trip, Jesus has to sit down. And he has to ask somebody for a drink. And what that tells me is that Jesus... Jesus understands even our most basic struggles, even things like thirst and fatigue, right? Jesus understands knee pain. Jesus understands back pain. Jesus understands what it means to be human. Uh, And we see that right here in the fact that he has to sit down at this well. He understands human weaknesses and human limitations. And so Jesus sits down at this well which happens to be the occasion for a pretty amazing conversation. And what we learn from this conversation is that Jesus is the satisfaction that meets us at our deepest point of need. And the first thing we're going to see is that Jesus can quench real thirst. I'm going to tell you what I mean by real thirst. Jesus can quench real thirst. So Jesus is sitting by this well, and a Samaritan woman comes up. She's there to draw water. And he says, give me a drink. And she responds basically in shock. She says, whoa, why, why do you, a Jewish man, ask me, a Samaritan woman, for a drink? Now, maybe to you and me, that doesn't seem like such a big deal. She was there. He didn't have a bucket. So, yeah, he needs a drink. But there are a few things going on. There are three barriers that Jesus has to deal with. The first one is the cultural barrier. The cultural barrier between the Jews and the Samaritans. You see, the Jews did not like the Samaritans. And this goes all the way back, really, to 2 Kings in the Old Testament, when the northern kingdom of Jewish people is exiled, taken out by Assyria. And what Assyria would do is they would resettle other people in your land. 
right? That really frustrated and demoralized people. And so Assyria removes a lot of the Jews and replaces them with other people from other countries with other gods. And those people mix and mingle with the remaining Jews. And what comes out of that is what the Jews considered a half-breed race with a half-breed religion. They would worship Yahweh, the God of the Old Testament, but they would also worship other pagan idols as well. And that obviously made the Jews angry. The Samaritans even went so far as to build their own temple. We read a little bit about that. They built their own temple on Mount Gerizim, which was an important mountain for Israel in the Old Testament. They built their own temple so to, to rival the temple in Jerusalem. And then the Jews came and they destroyed the Samaritans' temple. So you can see that this was not, there was no love in this relationship. It was, it was all hate. Samaritans were considered unclean. Uh, so a Jewish person, uh, if they were devout, would not eat from the same plate or drink from the same cup. That's what uh, it means there in verse 9 when it says Jews. Maybe your translation says Jews have no dealings with Samaritans. Literally, they share nothing in common. A Jew didn't even want to drink from the same cup that a Samaritan would drink out of. I want you to think about segregation in the United States. Separate water fountains. Separate bathrooms. It's the, and you get the similar picture of what's going on here. This is the cultural barrier that Jesus has to overcome. Then there's the gender barrier. Jesus is obviously a man, and this is a woman. Notice she doesn't say, ask for a drink from me, a Samaritan. She says, a woman of Samaria. These are some common Jewish sayings from the day. Praise God that he did not create me a woman. That's what a man would pray. Happy is he whose children are males. And woe to him whose children are females. Women are seen as inferior to men in Jesus' day. Married men did not engage women in conversation. That was morally questionable, especially away from the public eye. But we need to say, let me say this, that that was how the culture viewed women. That's not how the Bible views women. Uh, for that, go to the Old Testament. You see strong, godly women like Ruth, Deborah, Esther, the, the Proverbs 31 wife. In the New Testament, women are first at the cradle. They are the last ones at the cross. And they are the first ones at the empty tomb. Never let anyone tell you that the Bible demoralizes and dehumanizes women. Women receive more dignity from the Bible than any other religion in the world. Uh, and you cannot read even you can't read Old or New Testament and get anything but this: that, that women share with men the image of God. They are valued and they have dignity. And so. That's how the Bible viewed women. The culture viewed women differently. They were inferior. Uh, a synagogue had to be made up of at least ten Jewish men. Nine men and one woman did not count. So it would have been socially unacceptable for Jesus, a Jewish man, to talk to a woman in private, especially, let alone a Samaritan woman. So there's the gender barrier. The third barrier is the moral 
barrier. See, usually when the women would come to draw water at the well, they would come maybe early in the morning, but more likely in the evening. They would come as a group after the day's work was done, and they would gather the water for the next day. This woman is coming by herself in the hottest part of the day. It's, it's, it's clear that she doesn't want to be around other people. Something is very fishy about her behavior. She's choosing to come when no one else will be there, and she's choosing to do a pretty cumbersome task, draw all the water herself. But Jesus ignores all of these. He jumps right over all three of those man-made barriers, and he asks this woman for a drink. And she is dumbfounded. I'm shocked that you are asking me for a drink. But here's what Jesus says to that. If you knew the gift of God and who it is that is saying to you, give me a drink, you would have asked him. And he would have given you living water. What Jesus, in effect, says is, you're shocked. Actually, I'm shocked that you aren't asking me for water. You should be asking me for a drink. And now remember, living water simply means running water, okay? Fresh running water. But there is a spiritual connotation to it. So here's what Jesus is doing. Jesus is, Jesus, and he does this all the time, especially in John's gospel, he starts on the physical plane and then he goes deeper with it, right? He brings out the second meaning or the deeper spiritual meaning of this phrase, living water. It's an image that comes out of the Bible. We read it in Jeremiah 2 for our call to repentance, right? In a land where living water was the greatest thing you could get, living water came to be associated with God himself. It came to be associated with God's goodness, God's greatest gift. So to abandon God was to abandon the best thing you had going, was to abandon living water, which is exactly what Jeremiah 2 picks up. Jeremiah 2.13 is a perfect picture of our sin. Because what, here's what it says. Here's what God says to his people. And why he says, you should be shocked. Here is, here is the, sin you are commit, the sins you're committing. I have a fountain of fresh, clean, satisfying water over here. And what you are doing... My people, what you are doing is you're, you're coming over here and saying, eh, we don't really want the fountain. We don't really want the, the cool spring. We'd rather dig our own holes. We'd rather dig out water pits for ourselves and let them collect water, and we'll drink out of that. Except that those cisterns are broken. So remember that image uh, that I gave you of that cistern in the Bahamas, that uh, algae, mosquito-ridden, a rusty metal covering, like that's what people are saying. They're saying, hey, you know, the clean water, I don't want the clean water, I want the cistern water. And not only that, but their cisterns are broken. There's a, there's a crack in the bottom. And so all of the water is really leaking out. And when all the water leaks out of that nastiness, what are you left with? Just sludge. And God says, that's, that's what sin is. Sin is you choosing to drink sludge and abandoning the clean water that I provide. Jesus is picking up that image as he talks with this woman. She is confused, understandably maybe. He offers her living water, 
She's a little skeptical because he ain't got a bucket. Sir, you have nothing to draw water with. The well is deep, probably over 100 feet deep. Where are you getting that living water from? Are you greater? Surely you're not greater than Jacob, our father. Well, ironically, he is greater than Jacob, her father. And he's about to prove it. He says in verse 13, You see, everyone who drinks of this water will be thirsty again. This well is great. It's good water, clean water. There's a, there's a, there's a, there's a spring of living water underneath that the well tunnels down to. It never runs out. It's great but you're going to have to keep coming back here, right? As soon as it runs out, you've got you to gotta schlep your bucket all the way out here, dig down, get the water, go back. Every time, whenever you're thirsty, you've got to keep coming back here. So as great as this water is, as good as this water is, it's not going to quench your thirst. You've got to come back here. You're going to be thirsty again. When I'm offering you, you will never be thirsty again. You will never be thirsty forever. In fact, what I'm offering is a spring within you that will perennially satisfy you always so that you will never be thirsty. You will always be satisfied. What does he mean? Well, as important as physical water is, Jesus knows that a person's greatest need is actually God himself. So here's what Jesus is saying. I can quench your real thirst... Not your physical thirst. You'll need water, physical water for that. What I'm offering actually quenches that deep down thirst, the real thirst, the thirst that you're trying to quench using broken cisterns, the thirst you're trying to quench with sludge. What you need is to know God, and I can give you that. Isaiah 12 says this, You will say in that day, I will give thanks to you, O Lord, for though you were angry with me, your anger turned away, that you might comfort me. Behold, God is my salvation. I will trust and will not be afraid. For the Lord God is my strength and my song, and he has become my salvation. Verse 3, Isaiah 12, 3, With joy you will draw water from the wells of salvation. That's what Jesus is offering to her. He's saying, I've got deeper, better, richer wells. I have the wells of salvation that Isaiah talked to you about. I offer you that. That is the living water I offer you. Now she's interested. She says, sir, give me this water. But she's still confused because she says, so that I will not be thirsty or have to come here to draw water. She still thinks we're talking about physical water and physical thirst. And so Jesus turns up the heat a little bit. Not only, does he, not only can he quench our real thirst, but Jesus also reveals and cleans our moral messiness. Jesus turns up the temperature. He says, go, call your husband and come here. She says, I have no husband, which is true. Misleading, but true. 
We were just talking about water. Why in the world does Jesus get up in her business? Right? Why does he do that? Because she's missing the point. And so he uses her morally questionable past. Listen, we have no idea what happened with the five husbands. We don't know if they divorced her or if they died. We do know uh, that now she is sleeping with a man and she's ashamed of it uh, because she's not married to him and she won't even be honest about it. She just says, I don't have a husband. Right? And Jesus draws it out. He says, actually, you're right. You don't have a husband. You've had five. And now you have a man who you're not married to. And so what Jesus is doing is he is going after her point of greatest need so that she can actually see what he's offering her. Right? He is trying to reveal what she is really thirsting for. Are you okay with that? Are you, are you okay with, a, with Jesus getting up in your business? I want, I want you to see how, how tenderly but aggressively Jesus pursues this woman. Because here's, here's what we do, right? What we want to do is, is we want to say, Jesus, I'll give you, I, I'll let you into this much, right? I'll give you this part of my heart. But, but this over here, I'm closing off. This over here is off limits. Nobody gets to mess with this. This is the, this is the part I want to keep secret. This is the part I want to keep quiet. And Jesus won't let her. Jesus goes after her. Right? This woman, this woman is aiming to quench her thirst with men. Right? She wants... She wants to quench that deep down thirst by repeatedly using men. And yet she's still wanting. She's still thirsty. It's as if Jesus says, you know, you've been drinking out of that broken cistern for a while. How's that, how's that working out for you? Jesus calls up her greatest point of need. And you know, we do the same thing. Right? We... We partition off little parts of our heart and we say, this is off limits. I don't want to be honest about this sin. Right? Just like, just like I talked about coming, in, coming into worship when we, we put on the plastic smile and we wave like a beauty queen and we say, it's all okay. It's all okay. And really, the alternative is that I'm over in the corner and I'm drinking the sludge And I'm waving and pretending it's okay and nobody's saying a word. Can can we love one another better than that? Because here's here's why Jesus takes sin so seriously. Here's why he wants to deal with her moral messiness and why he wants to deal with my moral messiness and your moral messiness. Because when we do that, we are choosing so much less When we sin, we are choosing so much less than what we could have. That's why, and we want to, and we want to hide it, and we want to be ashamed. No, that's why we, that's why we confess our sin to one another. That's why we ought to hold one another accountable and ask hard questions. 
Because, because until, until the light gets into these dark corners, we're going to keep drinking the sludge and pretending that it's okay. Let's love one another better than that. And I don't, I don't mean the wagging finger of judgment. I don't mean the finger wagging that says, you should know better. I do. I mean, I mean the finger that points people to Jesus and says, what you're doing to yourself will kill you. Whether small sin or great sin, it will kill you. Your pride will kill you. You are, you are drinking sludge. It cannot quench your thirst. Let's go to Jesus together. That's what Jesus is doing for this woman. He's drawing her out of those dark recesses of her heart where she's aiming to quench her thirst with with the affections of men. And he's saying, come out of the dark. Come to the fountain. Come and drink. What is that for you? What lies do you tell yourself? This time it will be different. This will make me feel like a man. This will finally get me the respect that I've been wanting. Jesus says, you know, you've been drinking from that cistern for a long time. Why don't you come have some fresh water? Why don't you come to the springs? Because Jesus offers an endless supply of truly satisfying, living water. Never-ending. Robert Murray McShane, he's a Scottish pastor, I think in the 19th century. He said this, For every every look at your sin, take ten looks at Christ. For every look at your sin, take ten looks at Christ. So here's what that means. It means that Jesus is my remedy, and Jesus Jesus is my only remedy, and Jesus is my best pleasure. Right? For Jesus to be my only remedy, here's what it means. It means that, well, that I see my sin. And it's, it's bad. And it's, it's foul. It's messy. It's damnable. And then I hear that accusing voice that says, you wretched fool. You're disgusting. God wants nothing to do with you. God wants, God wants no part of you. But then I look at Jesus and I see him crucifying my shame. And I see him rising up from the grave with my new life in his hands. And I look at that accusing voice and I say, shut up. I may be wretched, but I am redeemed. Jesus is the only remedy for sin. It will not be found in anyone's arms. It will not be found in the approval of men or women. It is only found in the nail-scarred hands of Jesus. Not only is Jesus the remedy, but he is also the best and lasting pleasure. In uh, C.S. Lewis's story, The Lion, the Witch, and the Wardrobe, Edmund is captured. He's captured by the White Witch. But he's not captured by force. He's captured by his appetite. He uh, he wanders mistakenly uh, into Narnia. And he meets the white witch in the woods. He doesn't know how evil she is. And she offers him Turkish delight. 
these sweet little candies. And so he takes one, and it's amazing. It's the best, it's the best tasting candy he's ever had. And, as, and just as soon as the, the candy dissolves in his mouth, it disappears. And he wants more. And so he asks for more. And so she asks him questions, pressing him for information. And all he can think about is the Turkish delight. She gives him more. And it tastes amazing. And then it's gone and he wants more. And he he gets more. and, And he eats a whole plate of this Turkish delight. And then he wants more. And the white witch says, I don't have any more here. You'll have to come back with me to my castle. And he does. And he gets back to the castle and he's thrown in prison. No more Turkish delight. What a, what a wonderful picture of sin. It offers so much. It tastes so good. And then immediately we plummet. Right? That's how, I mean, that's, that's, that's how the science of addiction works. It, right? A substance or pornography, whatever it is, it causes this rush of feel-good chemicals in the brain, and as soon as that rush is over with, we plummet. And what we want is that fix again. We want to do it again. We want more Turkish delight. I want to taste that again and again and again, all the while driving further and deeper down into captivity. Edmund is not captured by force. He's captured by his appetite. And you and I are the same way. The way that you conquer an all-consuming appetite is not by pretending there is no appetite. Right? That's That's the way of the Stoic. The Stoic says that behavior is bad. Even if it makes me feel good, that behavior is bad. So I'm going to stop doing that. I don't need to feel good. I don't need to feel pleasure. I'm just going to wall myself off from all of that. That's the, that's the way of the Stoic. But, friend, that's, that's, kind of like, uh, that's kind of like running a race and crossing the finish line and the water and the Gatorade are right there and you say, I'm not thirsty, thanks. It's foolish, right? Um, w- the way to conquer... Your thirst is not by pretending that it's not there. The way to conquer your thirst is to quench it. To quench it with something that's truly and really satisfying. Not not Turkish delight that only satisfies for a little bit and then leaves you wanting more. But a truly satisfying goodness. Jesus. The way that you conquer your sin. Jesus, take one look at sin, take ten looks at Christ. Jesus is the remedy, the only remedy for our sin, and he is the best pleasure. The only way to conquer your sin, that craving that you have, is to satisfy it with something even better. Until we, until we learn to do that, until we learn to do battle with our sin in that way, We will be like Edmund. We must see that Jesus is far better than any of the false promises. Jesus is the quench. He he quenches our real thirst. And he he is the one who reveals and cleans up our moral 
messiness. Are you ready to lift your muddy face out of the cistern and come to the fountain of living water? That's the offer before you. Let's pray. Oh Lord, we long to be satisfied. And we have sought so many counterfeit satisfactions. Trump them all, Lord. Bring us to the fountain of living water to the well, to the spring that never runs out, never runs dry, always satisfies. Give us that spirit, that spring of water within us, welling up to eternal life. That one day, someday, when we will see you face to face and dwell by the river of life. We pray it in Jesus' name. Amen. Stand.